It's good to see you this morning. Grab a Bible, turn to 2 Corinthians 8. 2 Corinthians 8. While you're turning there, let me share a couple of things with you. Um, you know, uh, my father-in-law, Pastor Woody Church, passed away uh, this past November. He was um, our longtime uh, pastor of pastoral care and, and counseling. And so he would always say this phrase. You would ask him how he's doing. And he would always say, oh, I'm doing better than I deserve. Doing better than I deserve. So um, a member of our church, um, made wristbands that say better than I deserve on them. And uh, we'd, love, we'd love to give you one. So um, there'll be at the info counter uh, right outside. You can just go by and pick one up. Uh, if you would like one, we would, we would love for you to have one. So, uh, you know, when you think about that phrase, better than I deserve, is really true, isn't it? You know, you think about grace and you think about the truth that uh, God has been so gracious to us. We don't deserve his blessings. We don't deserve... Um, just the salvation that God has given us. We don't deserve uh, the family members and friends that we have. We don't deserve the air we breathe. All of those things, every good and perfect gift comes from above. And so when you live with that mindset, it really changes, it changes your whole uh, perspective. And so uh, I just wanna encourage you to get one. We also have at the info counter, uh, be the church window stickers for your car or for your laptop. So if you want one of those, uh, we encourage you to pick one of those up as well. So really kind of represents who we are as a church family. And uh, so go to the info counter to pick up all of your stones crossing swag needs. All right, it's just right there. It's all there. So all right, so we're gonna be looking at 2 Corinthians 8. We started a series called Be the Church. And uh, my angle on this series is just really, really simple. Uh, if we're gonna be the church that God wants us to be, we need to see ourselves as disciples of Jesus. And then we need to take a step, take a step in our discipleship. So it's really that simple. That is basic Christianity. That is Christianity 101. And so what I wanna do today is I wanna talk about money. I wanna, I wanna challenge you to take a step in your financial generosity. Now, I totally get it, I understand. It's at this point in the sermon where the tension level in the room begins to rise as I, as I talk about this, okay? So I totally understand that, I totally get that. I've done this long enough to know um, what happens when the preacher starts preaching about money. And, um, and so let me, let me just share a little bit of perspective behind that a little bit. Um, the first thing is, you know, as human beings, we, we're worshipers. So it's, it's, so it's in the inherent in who we are as, as, as a humanity that we're going to worship something. So the question is, you know, who are we gonna worship or what are we gonna worship? So we're all worshipers. And so even atheists worship something. Uh, no one is neutral when it comes to worship. So that's just, you know, part of what it means to be to be alive and to be, and to be human. And so we struggle with money. We, we, we really do struggle with just making things and money ultimate in our lives. And what I would say is if you struggle budgeting money or you struggle spending too much money, you struggle saving money, you struggle giving money away, I would just like to say to you, you are not alone. You're not alone in this room. You're not even alone on the row you're sitting on today because all of us struggle with it to some degree. And, and so that's just at the heart of what's happening, you know, um, in, in our hearts. And the other thing that I would say about this uh, is really this, because I, I know that, you know, there's a, there's a little bit of, 
you know, it can, there's a little bit of cynicism out there when it comes to when the preacher stands up and he starts talking about money. Because the first thought in your mind is, oh, well, the church must need money right now. So they're going to really ramp it up. And that's just not how we operate. You know, my heart is to teach you all of scripture, not just selected passages, you know, that, you know, that just kind of give you a slice of who God is and the salvation that he's given us. I want to preach to you the entire counsel of God, as they say. And so Jesus talked more about money than any other topic because he understood, he understood that really money and stuff is the, is the biggest rival to God that there is. And he, underst- he understood our temptation uh, to really worship it and, and to give ourselves to it. So, so that's at the, you know, that's kind of a little bit of just setting the stage this morning. I really believe as just as a pastor that, that, that generosity itself is core to the gospel. So understanding the gospel, you have to understand generosity. And so the gospel is this, that Jesus is Lord of all and Jesus gave all to us. So Jesus left the riches of heaven and became poor so that we who are poor could become rich in him. I mean, that's the gospel. And understanding the gospel means we have to understand generosity. And so generosity is also core to what it means to be a disciple. So you can't say, well, you know what? I'm a disciple in every area of my life, except in the area of my finances. You just can't say that because the scripture doesn't leave you with that category. You know, you can't say, well, you know, I'm a disciple of Jesus, but I'm not going to live a generous life. That's, that's a total disconnect. That would be me like, that would be like me saying, you know, I'm the biggest Colts fan on the planet, but I never go to the games and I never watch them on TV. I mean, that's kind of redonkulous. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, it's just kind of the way it is. And so, so generosity is at the core of the gospel. And a big part of our discipleship, our following Jesus every day is having the right perspective when it comes to generosity. And and so preaching about generosity is essential to what it means for us to be a disciple. You know, there's a pastor in Louisville. His name was uh, Bob Russell. He pastored the Southeast Christian Church in Louisville. It was a huge church, 20 20 to 25,000 people in attendance every weekend. And uh, he was a longtime pastor there. He was preaching a sermon about money and hoarding. And he he was really challenging the older members of his congregation to go ahead and start giving to their kids their inheritance, to go ahead and start doing that while they're living. And he gave a number of reasons in the sermon about why you should do that. And he talked about, you know, if you, you know, as um, you you can receive gifts up to $10,000 every year from the IRS or from your parents without having to pay an IRS tax penalty on it so you can take advantage of the tax laws on that. He said a lot of times, you know, your kids as they're growing up in their younger years, they really need some financial support as they're getting started. And so he said, don't wait until you die to pass on your inheritance. Go ahead and start helping them now. And he said, not only that, but he said, you'll see the benefit of it in their life. And then you get to see their gratitude. You get to hear them you know, say thank you and, and how much of a blessing it is. So he unpacked all of that in the sermon. Well, a few weeks later, he got a note from a, a young couple in his church and said, you know, I just want to thank you for preaching on money because um, my parents, the, the wife uh, said, my parents attended and heard that sermon that day. And, you know, we got a check from $6,000 from my parents and my brother got, you know, the same check. 
And so, she, she, you know, she said in the, in the note, she said, we just want to say thank you. She said, we call that sermon the $6,000 sermon right there. And she said, you just preach on money anytime you want to. And, uh, and so what I'm telling you is today could be a $6,000 sermon for you. So uh, anyway, um, that was kind of a joke, but you didn't get it. But um, <laughs> that's all right. Now, one of the things, one of the things that I've noticed as a pastor and why we, part of why we struggle with, with giving is we really don't see ourselves as, as rich. We, we don't see the affluence that we really have. We've, become bl- we've really become blind to that. In fact, I would submit to us today that we really see ourselves from a lens of scarcity and we kind of think we don't have that much at all. When that's just not the case. Let me just share with you some statistics that kind of, you know, give some perspective for us on this and just how wealthy we are as Americans. This is, these statistics are from the World Bank. And so basically, if you have more than $30 in your checking account right now or your savings account, you're richer. You're richer than one-sixth of the world's population. You're richer than one billion people in the world today if you have more than $30 in your checking account, because one-sixth of the world's population lives off $1 a day. So just think about that. Think about if you make $1,200 in a year, you're richer than 50% of the world's population, 50%. If you live at the poverty line in the United States, which is about $13,000 for an individual, about $32,000 for a family of four. If you live at that area, you're in the top 14% of wage earners in the world, just at the poverty line in the United States. So if you make $35,000 a year, you're in the top 5% in the world. Now, you see where I'm going with that? You see, most of us don't think of it in that way. Most of us really don't see just how blessed and affluent we really are. And according to Experian, the company that kind of rates, kind of holds our credit ratings, you know, according to them, you know, the average American is carrying about $6,000 in credit card debt. So you really begin to see the disconnect at that point because, because there's something making us believe that we need even more than we have that we're willing to go in debt for it. And so, and so what I want us to see is we are, we are so wealthy. We are so, you know, affluent. We're so blessed by God. And I think, I think a couple of things, you know, really kind of hinder us in this. And, and, you know, one of the reasons why we, we don't really see ourselves as wealthy is because we're always comparing ourselves to other people. You know, and so we look at somebody else's car, we look at somebody else's house, and so we kind of think, uh, wow, I wish I had that. I really don't have anything compared to them, and so I'm, I'm kind of, you know, poor or whatever. So our, our own habit of comparing ourselves to other people just, just kills us, you know, spiritually. I, I think another thing that, and maybe you don't really realize this, but our entire economy in the United States is built on making us discontent with what we have. I mean, do you realize that? Like advertising executives and marketing people, they, their job is to convince us that we need more. So we're bombarded with media messages telling us that we need the latest laptop. We need the latest, you know, Apple product. We need to upgrade our, 
you know, our smartphone and it's just constant and you get a little buzz from it and then it wears off and then you've got to go get another buzz. And so the whole thing is built, our whole economy is built on making us feel like we, we need a little bit more. And so if we would just give up the comparison game, if we would just choose contentment, you'll be amazed at, at, at how generous you, know, you become and how joyful you become. So, so I really think the question is this, for a disciple of Jesus, what does a disciple of Jesus do with her money? I think that's the question. I think if you just boiled it down to that, what does a disciple of Jesus do with her money? What claim does God have on our financial resource? I think that's the question. I think that's what we want to look at today. So we're going to look at this morning. I want to read a, uh, just a short passage of scripture to you. It's from 2 Corinthians 8. We're going to read it in just a moment. Let me give you a little bit of context so that, so that you, it'll make sense to you as we read through this. Uh, the Apostle Paul, this is in 2 Corinthians. So this was his second letter to the Corinthians. We looked at 1 Corinthians last week. He wrote several letters to the Corinthian congregation. So first and second are just the only two that God preserved for us. And um, so he's writing to them. They have, they have written to him and they've asked him a lot of questions about discipleship, about what it means to mature in the faith. And so he wrote to them answering those questions. And then 2 Corinthians is kind of a follow-up to that first letter. And he's writing to the Corinthian Christians because he's challenging them to you know, gather up an offering from the people in their congregation so he can take it to the Christians in Jerusalem. And if I remember correctly, there's a famine that's hit the area of Israel and the, and the Jerusalem church is really struggling financially. So what Paul is doing is he's taking this collection from all the churches that he planted around the Mediterranean and he's taking it to uh, the Jerusalem Christians who are uh, really struggling. And so what Paul does in this passage is he challenges them to be generous he challenges them to take a step in their generosity. And basically what he does is he uses the Macedonian Christians as an example to inspire them. And so that's why he references them. So I'm going to invite you, if you're willing and able, would you stand together uh, as we read the word of God? We're going to read the first seven verses of chapter eight this morning. So Paul writes this, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave, for they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace as well. This is the reading of God's holy word for God's people. You may be seated. Okay, so what is, what is he saying here? He's challenging them, he's challenging these Corinthian Christians to simply take a step in generosity and to give, to give of themselves. 
And he uses the Macedonian churches as his example, as kind of their model for giving. Now, there are a couple, I wanna make a couple of observations about the Macedonian Christians. First and foremost is this, the Macedonian Christians did not give, their giving was not circumstantial. And what I mean by that is the Macedonian Christians didn't just win the lottery. You know, they, they're not giving out a surplus here. In fact, he took great pains to describe the, the real circumstances that they did give out of. That they were under affliction and they were giving out of poverty. They gave beyond their means and they really wanted to. So what you see is you see that their giving didn't have anything to do with the fact that they had a lot to give. They just wanted to do it. And I think that's the second thing. They didn't give under compulsion. They did not give under pressure. And in fact, they begged the apostle Paul for the opportunity to join in with this so that they could help the Christians in Jerusalem. They begged him for the opportunity to do it. So it wasn't like, you know, Paul was putting the shakedown on them and really guilting them into this. No, they wanted to do this. And one of the things that I would share with you, church, is you should never give when you feel pressure to give. You should know that that's a sign. Hey, I need to back out of this thing. I need to step back. If you're feeling pressure, you're feeling like, you know, somebody's shaking you down to give and, you know, you, know, you should never, it, it should always just overflow out of joy in your relationship with God. So what Paul does in this passage, and this is what I want us to unpack, is he gives us two fundamentals for generosity. Now that we've kind of set it up and set the stage, he gives us two fundamentals for generosity. And I want to look at it. The first one is this. Fundamental number one, if you were kind of writing this down, generosity is grounded in grace. That is the first fundamental that we see right out of this passage, that generosity is really grounded in grace. Notice, notice again, verse one, what he says about generosity. He says, I, we want you to know brothers and sisters about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. Do you see that? So the whole emphasis here in this passage is grace. All right, go down to verse four and you notice what he says. He talks about testifying that the Macedonians begged us earnestly for the favor, for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. That word favor is the word grace. So now you've got a, a repeat on grace. Skip down to verse six. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. There you have it again, third time. Fourth time, he said, look at verse seven. He says this, but see to it that you excel in this act of grace. Now, do you catch that? Generosity is grounded in grace. That's what the apostle Paul is saying. He has mentioned it four times in about seven verses. That should, that should send the light bulb off there. And so all of our generosity is really sourced, grounded, connected to however you want to describe it in the grace of God. In other words, another way of saying it would be this, that generosity is really doesn't, you know, is not driven by the law. Generosity is not driven by rules. Generosity is not driven by obligation. Generosity is driven by grace. And there's just something when you come to realize the grace of God in your own life, that you were a sinner, that you deserved hell and death, but God in his love gave you grace. 
when you come to experience that church, it changes you on the inside. It changes your whole outlook because you really begin to see that your life is all of life is a gift of God's grace. So that's, that is fundamental number one, that our generosity is grounded in grace. The second fundamental that I want to share with you is this, that generosity has to be cultivated. That's the second point that I think Paul makes is that generosity has to, be, has to be cultivated. Go down and look at verse seven again. He says this, but as you excel in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge and all earnestness and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace as well. Now, what is he saying? He's saying that you need to cultivate generosity in your life. That's what he's talking about, cultivate it. You know, this whole, uh, that word excel literally means to overflow with grace, overflow with generosity or abound in it. Now, what's fascinating about this, I think what's, what is interesting about this passage is, you know, we typically think of grace and excelling in something as opposites. You know, you've got these two concepts of, you know, the grace of God, and then we're excelling in something. You know, we perform something, we do something, we, we endure, we persist in something. And we see these two things in op- as, you know, complete opposites. And what Paul does is he brings them together and he says, what I want you to do is I want you to perform an act of grace. I want you to practice an act of grace. I want you to do grace. I want you to endure in grace. I want you to persist in grace so that it becomes a part of your life. It becomes, you know, a habit in your life. That's what he's talking about. And I think a lot of us, you know, as Christians and maybe, you know, maybe this is you know, our fault as pastors, but, but some of us kind of think in terms of, well, you know, I prayed a prayer and I received Jesus as my Lord and Savior, so I don't have to do anything else. I'm good. I got my fire insurance and we're all good, you know, and, and, uh, and so some of us kind of think that way. But what Paul is saying in this passage is that there's a definite due part of our salvation, that we're saved by grace. And so now we're actually empowered to do something. That we don't just sit back passively and God just zaps us and makes us generous. Well, God, I'm just waiting. Just come on, man, bring it, you know, and you just kind of wait there. That's not how it works. We begin by taking steps in generosity. And what happens is our character begins to form. Let me, let me kind of explain it this way. You know, the whole process of growth and grace looks like this. God shows us our sin. He, he opens our eyes to our sinfulness, our self-reliance, our self-exaltation, our self-centeredness, our self-focus. He begins to open our eyes to that. And we begin to see, you know, the, the ripple effect of that in the lives of other people and how it hurts them. And, and then, he, then he lets us, you know, and he's so gentle with us, but he lets us see even how much it hurts him and how much it hurts us. And we slowly have our eyes open to that. And what do we do? We begin to grieve over our sin and we begin to repent over our sin. But God not only shows us and opens our eyes to his grace or to to sin, but he opens our eyes to grace as well. And we begin to see that, you know, that Jesus was our substitute. That Jesus took our place. That he paid the penalty for us. And so we, our eyes begin to be open to his love for us. 
And we begin to be transformed. And what he says is he issues the invitation that if you will put your reliant trust in me, then you will become united with me in my death and united with me in my resurrection. That's exactly what baptism is. We're united in his death and we're we're united in his resurrection. And so at that point, something has happened. We become regenerated. We become born again. Our spirits have become alive to the presence and to the spirit of God. And the spirit of God lives inside of us and we're tethered to God. We become, we become united with God so that the spirit of God is living in us. And get this, this is the most amazing thing. We are set free from the power of sin. Like we have power to overcome it. Why? Because we're tethered to God by the power of the Holy Spirit. So he's living in us. He raises us up in him. And now we have this power to overcome, overcome sin in our life. It doesn't mean we stop battling sin. We'll battle, our, we'll battle sin the rest of our life. But we have power through Christ to win the battle. Does that make sense? So now we're actually free to begin practicing generosity. We're, we're, we're free to be a generous people. And that's the work of salvation. That is the work of, of growing in grace. And so generosity really is a, a character trait that you build over time. And a character trait, a godly character trait built over time is called a virtue. And so you practice it and you practice it and you practice it until it just becomes a part of you. It just shapes you and you become a generous person. Isn't that interesting? You know who I was, I was trying to figure out a way to illustrate this and, I, and immediately uh, my, my father-in-law, Woody Church, comes to mind because he, man, he had generosity down. There was no question about it. Uh, and those of you who knew him, you, you knew that he, he had so much joy and it flowed out of, a generos- out of just generosity. And he really did live this, you know, I'm doing better than I deserve because he saw everything as, as a gift from God. But what he would do is, what he would, I, I can't tell you how many times he bought my breakfast, lunch, and dinner. I can't tell you how many times he did that. And I would have to, I'd have to, I'd have to steal his wallet if I wanted to pay for his dinner that day. Not only that, but, um, you know, my love language is books. And he would, he would, he would buy my, he would buy me books all the time and just say, oh, you, you would love to have this. You, you should take it. Or um, not only that, but we would be, you know, at our house and he would just drop by and he would have five blizzards with him from Dairy Queen. You know what I mean? Um, or he would go to Jack's Donuts and buy a dozen donuts and say, hey, I just wanted to bless you today. And he was always doing that. And it wasn't just because we were his family. He, he did this all the time to other people. We would be on vacation and, and you know, people would call Woody and they're, they're struggling. They're the battling depression or they're struggling in their marriage. And he would just, he would just kind of slip away quietly, go spend about, you know, 45 minutes on the phone in a corner talking to them and encouraging them because he just loved people. He was just very generous. And I think he came to the place of understanding that generosity is something you practiced and he practiced it so much until it was really who he was. And that's called virtue. And you know what? That's discipleship. And that's what, that's what God wants for all of us. And so it, it requires, you know, practicing it and, and putting it, putting it and applying it to our life. You know, let's just kind of flip the script a little bit. You know, think about vice, okay? Think about an ungodly characteristic. You know, you think about, you know, you think about 
you know, lust. And lust is, you know, when you, you, in your mind, you objectify another person. And then you do it again and again. You practice it till it really becomes a part of you. It becomes a part of your thinking and it becomes a part of your heart. That's lust. And it's an ungodly characteristic built over time. And it's, it's become a habit. Or greed. Just having this perspective that everything that I have is mine and, you know, life comes from having stuff. And we habitualize that so much that it shapes us and it forms us where we become a greedy people. That's how it works. And so it really boils down to which one do you want, virtue or vice? And so what Paul is saying in this passage is I want you to excel in the grace of giving. I want you to practice it. I want you to do it. I want you to act on it. I want you to try it on for size. I want you to persevere in it until it becomes a part of you. That's what he's trying to challenge these Corinthian Christians with. Now, here's the question. How do we cultivate it? How does, how, let's get a little bit more practical with this. How do we cultivate it? I think Paul tells us how to do it. I, I think he gives us three ways. Look, look with me at verse five. Look at what he says. He gives us the first clue to how to cultivate this practically in our life. He says, you know, they begged us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And, and this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Do you know the first way to cultivate generosity? You know what that is? It's called consecration. It's called consecration. Paul is saying, these Macedonian believers gave themselves first to the Lord and then they were able to give themselves to us as a result. In other words, generosity flows out of our consecration to God. That's what Paul is saying, that there's a definite order. We give ourselves first to the Lord and then his spirit is working within us so that we have these divine resources that, that we can then pass on and give to others. And so you can't just give yourself to others without giving yourself to the Lord because you need something to give to them. And so when we give ourselves first to God, he give, God gives us himself, which enables us to give him to other people. And other people just drink that in. That's what he's saying. And so there's a definite order to this, that we first give ourselves to the Lord. And, it, and it's, it is really just a recognition that God is the creator of all things. You know, that Colossians talks about, you know, Jesus, everything was created by Jesus and for Jesus. And, and get this, everything is held together by Jesus. So, so we give ourselves to God out of recognition that as creator, everything belongs to him. Does that make sense? Like if I wrote a book, who does that book belong to? Well, it belongs to me because I wrote it. If you painted you know, some beautiful painting, who does that painting belong to? It belongs to you. And so by virtue of God being creator, of Jesus creating, we belong to him. We are his. He created us. He has the divine right to our lives. But it's even more than just recognizing him as our creator and bowing before him. I think another part of consecration flows out of knowing that he loves us. 
and he's good. I mean, not only did he create us, but he has promised his love to us. That he's promised to protect us and to walk with us, to be with us, and to provide for us. You know, no other religion gives you that. None. But the living God does. And so we give ourselves to Jesus because, you know, he, he owns us and because he is good. And so discipleship is really consecration. And there has to be a point in time in your life and in my life where we say, God, all I have, all I am and all I ever hope to be is yours. That's called consecration. I love how C.S. Lewis puts this. He uh, writes in Mere Christianity, he says this, Christ says, give me all. I, I don't want so much of your time and so much of your money and so much of your work. I want you. I've not come to torment your natural self, but to kill it. No half measures are any good. I, I don't want to cut off a branch here and a branch there. I want the whole tree down. I, I don't want to drill the tooth or crown it or stop it, but to have it out. Hand over the natural self, all the desires which you think are innocent, as well as the ones you think are wicked, the whole outfit. And I will give you a new self instead. I will give you myself. My own shall become yours. You see what he's saying there? He's on to something. That we think if we consecrate ourselves to God, we lose. We think we're going to lose something in the transaction. Oh, I have to give up something really good. No, you don't lose anything. You gain everything. Because you gain, you gain Jesus. That's what he's saying. So, so these Macedonian believers, they gave themselves first to the Lord. That's consecration. But secondly, that he talks about imitation. That's what the Apostle Paul says. We, we can grow in generosity, not only through consecration, but we can grow it through imitation. That's why Paul appeals to the Corinthians to consider the Macedonians, Macedonian believers. You see, he knows, Paul knows we need models. We need examples. We need other people in their discipleship journey to inspire us and to show us how it's done. And so Paul is using this. He already talked about it in 1 Corinthians. We looked at that last week. Paul said, imitate me. Now he's talking about imitate the Macedonian believers. You and I need models. We need, we need to learn from others. And that's exactly what he's talking about. Now this you guys, I'm always talking about this because I want to raise, I want to raise your discernment level. But this flies in the face. This, this blows up American individualism, which is the dominant message of our culture. And, and, and when it comes to money and finances, what's the message of our culture when it comes to money? It's a personal matter. And it's none of your business. That's the thought, Right? It, you know, what I do with my money and my investments and my stuff, that, that's, that's just, that's my own business. And, you know, if you're struggling dealing with debt and you're struggling, you know, dealing with budget, the message of the culture is you figure it out all by yourself. That's not God's way. Because have you noticed throughout the Old and New Testament, the emphasis on community, 
the emphasis on relationships and the family of God and how interdependent we really are on one another, that we need each other to learn from each other. And so if you kind of come to that place and you're struggling financially and you, you, you don't really know how to budget, you don't really know how to manage debt and you struggle spending, you know, if you, if you cut yourself off from the family of God, here's what you're doing. You're cutting yourself off from the wisdom of God. And what that means is you're cutting yourself off from the blessing of God. And then we, we, we make mistakes, we get ourselves in the hole and it's hard to dig out of it. And then we're really, you know, up the creek without a paddle at that point. And so what Paul wants them to see is, is look, look at the Macedonians, rely on them, lean on them. And that's what your church family is here for. And I'm not saying, you know, broadcast your financial situation on Facebook. Okay, I'm not saying that. But you know, you know some mature believers that you can go to and say, you know what, I really need some help with this. Could you help me? That's what the family of God does. And that's just at the heart of it. Let me, let me give you a practical step, step that you can take with this. You know, we're gonna be launching classes, uh, you know, in just a couple of weeks. And we're offering two offerings of Financial Peace University. So one will be Sunday uh, afternoons at 4 p.m. here at the church. And the other class will be uh, offered Wednesdays at 6.30 here at the church. There'll be childcare for both. And if you know anything about Financial Peace University, you know that Dave Ramsey is the hottest name in and uh, budgeting and dealing with finances and what he's he's a believer and he takes God's word and applies it to the area of finances and he teaches it in a way that you and I can understand and the great thing is is you get into a group of other people and you're all tracking together and you can learn from one another does that make sense you need to sign up for it if this is an area that you really want to have peace and blessing in your life, I really want to encourage you to do it. So right after the service, go out to the info counter and, and sign up today. I want to just encourage you to do that. Everybody get that? All right. That's a great way for you to begin, you know, this, this lifestyle of generosity. All right. So here's the last one. So we cultivate generosity through consecration. We, we, we cultivate it through imitation, but we also cultivate it, and I've already alluded to this, through repetition just through repetition, practicing it over time till it becomes a part of who we are. Can I give you two practical ways to build repetition of generosity in your life? Just two real practical ways. One practical way to build, to build generosity in your life is just to open up your home through hospitality. To open up your home through hospitality. You're like, well, what is hospitality? Well, I mean, you all know what it is. It's, it's really where you just open up your space, you open up your schedule, you open up your refrigerator, <laughs> and you have somebody over in your life. And it's not entertaining, it's fellowship. And so one way to grow in generosity is just to open up your space, open up your life, open up your heart and invite someone else into this. And it will turn your life upside down. Because God works when we give away what he has given to us. Rosaria Butterfield is an author. She's, she's written a book called The Gospel Comes with a, with a House Key. She's also written a book called Openness Unhindered. I want, I want to share with you a quote from her book about the power of hospitality. And I think you really get a feel from what I'm talking about just from her practicing it. She says this, don't let pride stop you from opening your home. Ignore the cat hair on the couch or in the macaroni and cheese, 
it, won't likely, it, it likely won't kill anyone as decisively as loneliness will. Add as much water to the pot to stretch the soup. If you run out of food, then make pancakes and put the kids in charge of making the meal. See how much fun that is. And know that someone is spared from another humiliating fall into internet pornography because he's instead walking with you and your kids and dogs as you share the Lord's day. One model of how the Lord gives you daily grace and a way of escape. Know that someone has spared the fear and darkness of depression because she's needed at your house, always on the Lord's day, the day she's never alone, but instead safely in community where her place at the table is needed and necessary and relied upon. Know that someone is drawn into Christ's love because the the Bible reading and psalm singing that come at the close of the meal includes everyone that it should remind us that no one is scapegoated in this Christ-bearing community. Know that host and guest are equally precious and fragile and that you will play both roles throughout the course of your life. The doors here open wide, they must. I think the American church has lost this and we need to regain it. And I think if we practice hospitality repeatedly, it would change us. Let me give you another way to practice generosity not only through hospitality but through tithing through tithing now this is you know this is something we've we've talked about in the past but uh, tithing just means one tenth and so what you see is you see that God ordained for Old Testament uh, believers the the faithful in the Old Testament that they would give 10 percent the first 10 percent of God's blessing in their life they would give it they would give it back to God as an offering and that's really what tithing is And so I would encourage you to take a step in tithing if you've never done it before. And I know that as a pastor, I've done this long enough to know that, you know, that's like, wow, 10%, that's a lot. Well, don't start at 10%, start at 1%. I mean, if you've never given, you know, to the work of God, to the church, just start at 1% and say, you know what? Our goal this year is to give 1% for an entire year. And then at the beginning of the second year, we'll raise it to 2%. And at the, you know, the beginning of the third year, we'll raise it to 3%. And just practice it and see if God doesn't bless your life. See if generosity doesn't begin to shape you and form you. Because see, here's the thing, church. Here's what happens. Wherever, wherever your money goes, your heart's going to go with it. It's just a principle. So if you, give your, if you give your money generously, your heart is going to become generous. Think about if you were, if you were to invest in Apple stock, Let's say a lot of money in Apple stock. What would you do? You'd start reading the news headlines about the latest news about Apple. You'd start checking the ticker, you know, on how Apple stock, you'd get really interested in Apple stock, wouldn't you? Do you know that if you sponsored a child, let's say from Haiti, you know, so that they could go to school, you know what would happen to you? You'd get real interested in the news going on around Haiti. You know what? Your heart is moving towards Haiti and towards the world. You know, if you started donating to plant churches in India and then all of a sudden you hear news about an earthquake in India, you know what you would do? You would start praying fervently for the believers in India. You know why? Because, because you're sending your money over there. Where, whatever you do with your money, your heart's gonna follow. And so I just wanna challenge you, church. 
to start, start giving. Take a step and start giving. Open your hand and open your heart. You can do it through hospitality. You can do it through tithing. You can do it a number of ways. But open up your heart. Think about this. Jesus left the riches of heaven and became poor so that the poor here, which is all of us, could become rich. That's our motive for generosity. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you really don't need money. You own it all. It all belongs to you. You've just allowed us to be managers and stewards for a time. And I pray, Lord, that you would cultivate in this group of disciples, God, that you would cultivate a kingdom mindset, a joyful heart, and a generous practice. Thank you for the grace that you've given us. Thank you for the grace that you've shown us that, Lord, the truth is, no matter how hard it is, the circumstances we're going through right now, the truth is we're doing better than we deserve. That all of life is a gift from you. And so I ask that our church would just be known and continue to be known for our generous, our generous life, our generous heart, our generous practices. God, that you would work in us in that way, that we, would, that we would see that we just need to take a step towards you. And so God, thank you for your love. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for sharing everything with us. And so we consecrate ourselves to you afresh and anew, knowing we don't lose anything. We gain you, we gain everything. So Lord, let that be real in us. May your spirit work in this room today. And we thank you and all of God's people said, amen.